Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Let's take our Bibles and let's go to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15 this morning, the book of Mark. In chapter 15, hopefully you have your Bible with you. If you do not, it should be one, perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you, maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And I would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us this morning. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to find our place in verse number 25, and we'll go verse 25 all the way down to verse number 37. Mark chapter 15, verse 25 to verse number 37. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, let's stand together out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 25, down to verse number 37. Before we read our passage of Scripture this morning, how many of you have ever done one of those word association games? You've ever played something like this? So this is how it happens. If, if I say a word... There's a particular image that kind of comes to your mind or a name that comes to your mind. So, for example, if I say dog, what's the first image that comes to your mind? Little Fido, little Junior, right? Whatever your dog's name is. Hopefully you have a, a more masculine dog than Evan has, right? If I say George Washington, what comes to your mind? Okay, first president of the United States, the guy that wore the wig, okay, something like that. If I say Michelangelo, probably one of two things come to your mind. Either the painter or, for most of us, the Ninja Turtle, right? <laughs> one of two. You immediately think of some event around that person. You think of some distinguishing characteristic about that individual. If I say, Jesus Christ, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? For most people, they think his death. In fact, all around the world, Jesus is associated with one symbol, the cross. That's what we're studying here in Mark chapter 15, the cross of Jesus Christ. You, you cannot make sense of Jesus' life. You cannot make sense of Jesus himself unless you understand his cross. When you read the Gospels, the Gospels begin with the end of Jesus in mind. In fact, in Matthew chapter number one, the very first Gospel, the very first chapter, they talk about Jesus. The angel says to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And how will he do that? How will he save us from our sins? And the answer is through his death. You read the book of Luke. And Jesus is just a few days old and there's a man named Simeon who holds the little baby Jesus and says, this baby, this little boy 
will be the rising and the falling of many in Jerusalem. They will oppose him, he says. In other words, this little baby is going to have enemies. And what will his enemies do to him? They will kill him. They will put him to death. In John's gospel, it begins by saying, he will come into his own, but his own will not receive him. In what way will they not receive him? How will they reject him? They will reject him by crucifying him. And even in Mark's gospel, which we've been studying, before you're even halfway through the text, three different times, Jesus is told us already, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise. I'm going to die, I'm going to rise. The most important thing about Jesus you learn at his death. Jesus did miracles, that's important. Jesus taught, that's important. Jesus loved, that's important. But none of those things make any sense apart from his death. And that's what we're reading about here. So look with me now, verse number 25. This is Jesus on the cross. You remember last week we stopped here. Verse 24, when they had crucified him. We ended last week with them putting Jesus on the cross. And now here's what takes place on the cross. And it was the third hour and they crucified him. So it's 9 a.m. The, 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 the Jewish morning began at 6 o'clock. So the third hour, three hours from 6, 9 a.m. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. Remember, they found him guilty of two things. They found him guilty first of blasphemy. They found him guilty second of treason. So here's what they're saying. And with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith that he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, that thou, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when it was the sixth hour, so it's noon now, all of that's been taking place from nine till noon. And when it was the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, nothing but darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias, which is another name for Elijah. So they say, look, he's calling out for Elijah. And one ran and filled the sponge full of vinegar. They 
put it on a reed. They gave it to him to drink, saying, let alone, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, we ask that you would use your word in our lives. Teach us the great, deep, wonderful meaning of the cross. Of all that was accomplished for us in this passage. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We saw last week that Jesus was suffering. It was really the primary lesson. That as Jesus is suffering, there was one by the name of Simon who was called alongside to enter into that with him. And we talked about that last week. Our being willing to pick up the cross and follow after Jesus. We see this week Jesus was forsaken. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll see how Jesus was in fact victorious. But for this week, we see how Jesus is forsaken. Forsaken in these few hours on the cross that we just read about. And Jesus' death was as, as extraordinary as his life. The manner of Jesus' death was not unusual. Thousands of people died on the cross. Hundreds of people were crucified. Some, as many as hundreds at one time. Even in the text here, there are people being crucified right alongside of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was crucified is not what is extraordinary. What's extraordinary is what happens while Jesus is being crucified. That is what is unusual. And it's really three things that the passage tells us that happens. We see first, there's an entire darkness around Jesus' death. That's the first point. Jesus died in darkness. Look at the verse. The verse is verse number 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Matthew records the same. Luke records the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the fact that when Jesus died, it was pitch black all over the land. Whatever was about to happen on the cross was going to happen in complete darkness. It's interesting, isn't it, that 33 years earlier when Jesus was born, at night, the Bible says, the sky cracked open and in the middle of the night it was like as bright as day as the angels declared Jesus was being born and now here 33 years later when Jesus is dying in the middle of the day it is as dark as the middle of night why why, why is the authors of the Bible going way out of their way to tell us about this event why is this being recorded? Well, whenever you, you come across something unusual in the Bible, it's, it's always a good Bible study method to, to look back and see if there's anything else like this in the text. Where have we seen something like this before? 
And you'll, you'll be reminded, if you put your Bible thinking cap on, you'll be reminded of a passage in Exodus chapter number 10 when the judgment of God is falling on Egypt. And Egypt is refusing to do as God says. And God judges them by putting darkness on the land. Darkness in the Bible is often associated as a sign of God's judgment. That's why three times Jesus, when he's speaking about an eternal judgment, a place called hell, three different times Jesus says it's outer darkness. It's the judgment of God toward human sin. Darkness is the judgment of God on us. What's happening at, at, at the crucifixion of Jesus while Jesus is dying in the darkness? The judgment of God is being poured out. For three hours on the cross, God is judging the Lord Jesus Christ. All the fury, all the wrath of God is being poured out on Christ in this moment. And that Jesus on the cross is suffering in eternal hell for all people everywhere. This could not be more true in the scriptures. First Timothy chapter one, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners from their sin. Romans chapter three, verse 10, Romans chapter three, verse 23. Are we not all sinners in John chapter 1, is Christ not the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world? Mark chapter 16 is not the gospel of Christ preached to every creature everywhere. What is Jesus doing on the cross in complete darkness? He's coming under the judgment of God for you and for me. He willingly goes under the judgment of God so that you and I do not have to go under the judgment of God. And Christ is extending an invitation to all that would believe on him, to all who would turn from their sin and repent of their wicked deeds and who would put their faith and trust in him and in him alone to have a right relationship with God, that they do not have to come under the judgment of God. They do not have to go under the darkness. They do not have to be sent into outer, into outer darkness as a result of what Christ has done for us. And Christ offers this to you and to me. You do, you do know that the offer is only as good as the provision or the intent of the offer. For, for example, if you were having a, a difficult time financially, and I heard about that. So I came to you and I said, hey, I, I hear you're going through a difficult time financially. I, I want to make, make an offer to you. I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars. How many of you would say, wow, very generous. Thank you very much, right? The pastor really does love me. Pastor really does care for me. How many of you would think I was a very kind person if I did that, right? Just gave you a check of a million dollars. Just here, help you out. But the offer is only as good as the provision and the intent. But if I said, hey, I have this check for you for a million dollars, but the one condition is you have to swim from here to Hawaii in order to get it. How many of you go, you know what, that's not, you're not as kind as I thought you were. You're not as loving as I thought you were. It's only as good as the intent, but it's also only as good as the provision. 
So how many of you know, even if you could possibly swim from here to Hawaii when you got there and you took my check for $100, it would go bounce, bounce, bounce all the way along the way. Why? Because there's no provision for that kind of money in my bank account, right? The offer is only as good as the intent and the provision of the offer. So Christ comes to die on the cross for our sin. He comes for all sinners everywhere. But the intent is who? The, the provision is for who? Well, the provision from Christ is for all men who would believe. And the intent of Christ's offer is for all men who would believe. In other words, Christ does not make us an empty offer. He offers you and me full forgiveness of our sin if we would turn by faith from our sin, if we would repent of our sin and turn from our self-righteousness and believe on him and what he has done for us. So the darkness that Christ died in, you need to understand this, the, the, the darkness that Christ died in was not the absence of God. The, the darkness that Christ died in was not the presence of Satan. The darkness that Christ died in was the judgment of God being poured out on him that day. It's God judging his son who was sinless as if his son was a sinner so that you and I who are sinners could be welcomed into God's family as sons and daughters. What's happening on the cross? First, Christ is dying in darkness. What's happening on the cross? There's a second thought here. The second thought is that Christ died under the curse. So look what happens. The Bible says, Verse 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's the judgment of God being poured out on Christ for you and for me. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. And Jesus cries with a loud voice this phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So after three hours in the deepest darkness that anyone has ever known, the Bible says that Jesus cries out with a loud voice. You, you will remember this, that when, when Jesus was falsely accused, he never said a word. When Jesus was lied about, he, was, he never said a word. When, when Jesus was mocked, he was ridiculed, he never said a word. When Jesus was beaten and whipped, he never said a word. But now here on the cross, when God pours out his judgment onto his son, Christ, the Bible records, cries out with a loud voice for us. You say, why? Why is he crying out in this moment? Well, you must understand this, that the love that the son had for the father and the love that the father had for the son is a love that was there before the world began. It's a love that will be there for all of eternity. 
You'll remember Jesus praying for his disciples. He asks God the Father in John chapter 17 that they, the disciples, would be as they were, Jesus and God. That the, the Father and the Son share one love. They shared one spirit. They shared one purpose. They shared one will. But now on the cross, the Son is becoming the sin bearer. The judgment of God is being poured out on him. And he cries out with this loud voice as he falls under the curse of God for us. Jesus deserving all the inheritance from God. Jesus possessing a perfect righteousness. Jesus who was deserving of an infinite heavenly reward is coming under the curse of God for you and for me. And he is inviting all of those who would believe in him, who would put their faith in him to, to, be, to be given the reward from him. And if we would turn from our sin, if we would place our faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, then our sins would be covered. We would receive a righteousness from Jesus Christ as if it were ours. And Jesus would take on him the sin penalty for which we rightfully deserve. And Jesus cries with a loud voice as he comes under the curse of sin for us. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 records it like this. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse by being made a curse for us. So Jesus is enduring all of this on the cross so that you and I would never have to. Jesus is dying this death for us. He's entering into this darkness. He's being forsaken by the Father. He's coming under the curse of God so that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. So that you and I would never have to be cursed by God. So that you and I would never have to enter into darkness separated from God. And Christ was separated from God for us. So that you and I would never have to be separated from God. In fact, that's what Paul says. Paul says for believers, there is no separation from God. Romans chapter 8. What shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Should height? No. Should depth? No. Should any creature? No. Should tribulation or trials or suffering or pain or difficulty? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because Christ willingly was separated from God for us who believe. Christ is isolated from God so that you and I would never have to be isolated from God. This is why he can make us the promise in Hebrews chapter 13. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This is why he tells the disciples, wherever you go, I am always with you. You will never have to be isolated from God. Why? Because Christ was isolated from God for us. Christ condemned by God 
So you and I do not receive condemnation from God. In Romans chapter 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're perfect? No. Because we got it all together? No. Because our lives are just rosy red? No. Why is there no condemnation for us? Because Christ was condemned in our place. Do you understand? Christ went under the curse. He was forsaken. He was isolated. He was condemned so that you and I could receive the promises that we would never be condemned, that we would never be isolated, that we would never be left alone, that we would never be forsaken because we've put our faith and trust in Christ. And Christ has paid the full penalty of our sin on the cross. You say, Pastor, what's happening in the cross of Jesus Christ? First, Christ is coming under our judgment. He's entering into darkness for us. Second, Christ is coming under our curse. How many have ever heard of the law about double jeopardy in the law? That, that a person cannot be charged with the same crime twice. How many have ever heard of this before? So when it comes to Jesus Christ, and you repent of your sin, and you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says that you and I are now in Christ. That, that's how the Bible most frequent, frequently records or, or, or talks about Christian people. We're in Christ. So God, when he looks at you, does not view you alone. He views you as being in Christ. So when he sees you, he identifies you with his son, his son who came under the judgment for us, under the curse for us, so that we are inseparable from Christ, we're in him. Christ dies for us. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you put your faith and trust in him, no charges can be brought against you. Why? Because all of your charges were levied on Christ. No condemnation can be laid on you. Why? Because our condemnation was taken by Christ. No judgment or isolation afforded to us. Why? Because we were, we were in Christ. And if your response to that, if your response to that is, well, doesn't that mean that I could just go around and commit any sin that I want to commit and get away with it? If you're asking that question, well, good. What that means is you finally understand the gospel of grace. Paul spends the entire chapter in Romans chapter 5 explaining the heart of the cross. And then he starts Romans chapter 6 by saying, so what shall we then say? Shall we then live unto sin so that grace can abound? And by the way, the answer to that question is no. But when you come to Christ in repentance and faith, he makes you his own. 
He gives you his spirit. The Bible says he makes you a new creature. He sets you in a new direction. You, you, may, you may fail many times, and you will. You will repeatedly come up short of your goal. But if you are a Christian, if you realize what Christ has done for you, how he has poured his life out for you, to the degree that you understand what Christ did on the cross is the degree that you are willing to pour your life out for him. Christ separated from me? Well, I want to be with him. Christ forsaken from me? Well, I want to be where he is. Christ suffering my disobedience on the cross, I want to be obedient to him. Christ died in darkness. Christ died under the curse. That if you are in Christ, and Christ has been crucified for your sins, listen very closely, then you cannot be charged you cannot be convicted. You cannot be condemned. Why? Because Christ was charged and convicted and condemned for us on the cross that day. Do you see how liberating this is for us as believers? You see how freeing it is for us? Not to live for ourselves, but to freely and fully and finally live for him. This is the great difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Because every other religion in the world says, do you want, to, you want forgiveness from God? You want to be free from your charge? You want to be free from your conviction? You want to be free from your condemnation? Well, then you better work and you better earn it. And you better do good deeds. And you better be a good neighbor. And you better help the, the needy. And you better give to the poor. And you better feed the hungry. And you better rack up enough good deeds that hopefully in the end, your good deeds will outweigh all those bad things you did. And you'll be right with God. That's every other religion in the world. But Christianity, and Christianity alone says, no, 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 you're a sinner. No, 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 you, you are convicted. You are condemned. You are charged. And yet, Christ, he left the glories of heaven. He laid it all down. He took on himself flesh. He humbled himself and became a man. And then he died on the cross in our place so that you and I who are guilty, you and I who should be condemned can go free because Christ died for us. We're not operating in a position to try to earn God's love. We're operating in a position of knowing the love of God. God loves us. And if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then Christ lives in us. So why then would I not gladly and willingly live for him? Live for Christ. He was poured out on the cross for me. So I'll take whatever hopes, whatever dreams, whatever resources, whatever talent, whatever time, whatever abilities, 
and I'll pour them out for Christ. I will live for the glory of God, whether I'm eating, whether I'm drinking, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing for the glory of him. That is the Christian mindset in the world. Christ died in darkness. Christ died under the curse. But there's a third and final thought, and I want you to see this. Christ died trusting God. Look at the phrase. It's verse number 34. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So when he says, Eli, Eli, the people that are standing near him think he's calling out for Elijah. That's what's told to us in verse number 35 and verse number 36. So look at these verses. And some of them that stood by when they heard it, when they heard him say, Eli, Eli, when they heard him say, my God, my God, they thought that he was calling for Elijah. So when they heard it, verse 35, behold, he's, he calleth for Elijah. So one of them run, they fill a sponge with full of vinegar, they put it on a reed and they're going to give it to him to drink. And then someone else responds by saying, no, 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 let him alone, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come down and take him off of the cross. So they had a belief that Elijah, if you called to him in your prayers, that he would come and deliver you in your great hour of need. In fact, I, I have a, a Bible trivia question for you. There are two people in the Old Testament who never died. Elijah is one of them. But there's another one in the Old Testament that the scripture records for us who never died. Don't say it out loud. That's your homework assignment. If you can answer it, you get bonus points for next Sunday's sermon, okay? But Elijah never died. That's what the Bible says. And they had this belief that Elijah would come back. They could pray to Elijah. He would come back and he would deliver them from whatever trouble they were in. So when they hear Jesus say, Eli, Eli, what they think he's saying is they think he's saying, they think he's calling out for Elijah. So they're saying, no, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and deliver him. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down off of the cross. But he isn't calling out to Elijah. And do you know why he isn't calling out to Elijah? Because Elijah is just a man, like all of us are. Elijah is just a person, like you and I. Elijah is just a human being, like you. He's not calling out for Elijah. He's calling out to God, his father. He's saying, my God, my God. Now, now do not miss this. Do not miss the personal pronoun. My God. So while Jesus is being forsaken, while Jesus is being charged and convicted and condemned, while Jesus is going under the curse, while God is judging Jesus, Jesus says to him, my God, my God, God may have turned his back in judgment on Jesus, but Jesus never 
turned his back on God. Listen. While God may have turned his back in judgment on Jesus, Jesus never turned his back on God. My God. It's personal pronoun, it's personal relationship. He's my God. And if he is God, then he can do what he wants. Isn't this true? If he is God, then he knows what's best. If he is God, then he knows what's right. If he is God, then he always does what's good. If he is God, then he operates in my life as God. And I am not him. And you are not him. Aren't you thankful for that? But he is God. And Jesus is showing us in the worst, terrible, horrible situation of our lives. We can still cry out to God. My God. Jesus says, my God, my God. Notice this. Why? The darkest hour of Jesus' life, he asks, why God? To my God. Job one time said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Have you, ever, have you ever been hurt so bad that all you can do is cry? You ever been in a position in life where the trouble, the hurt, the trial, the suffering was nothing but a cry of pain. See, there's a, there's a way to make the cry of pain and actually, actually a cry of faith. My God, my God. The deepest pains that we feel in this life the, the pain that brings like the most emotion out of us is a pain that we feel in experience with relationships. The agony of losing somebody you love. The betrayal of a friend. The abandonment of a spouse. Being forsaken by a parent. That touches... It touches the deepest parts of our lives. And those wounds that we experience in relationship, they go deeper than we realize. In fact, some of those wounds are the reason why we have a lot of self-destructive behavior. Much of the sin in our world much of the sin in our lives is triggered. It's driven by deep pain from relationships. It is not wrong at times to ask God, why? 
I'll tell you, as a pastor, I've not only heard many people ask that question, but, but I've asked God that question before. But can I give you some good news about whatever pain you may be experiencing in this life? God is not afraid of your question. God is not afraid of your questions. He can handle our questions. As someone once said, history can answer when questions. Geography can handle the where questions. Science can answer the what questions. But only God can answer the why questions. When you run into the why questions of life, and we've all had them, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're sitting there with a why question right now. You should not allow your why question to drive you away from God. You should allow your why question to drive you toward God. How so? First, remember your personal relationship with him. Paul asks the question like this. Paul says, if God sent his son to die on the cross for our sin, if he forgave us of our sin, then would he not also freely give us all things whatsoever we need? So if, if God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, which we didn't deserve, then, then won't he also take care of our everyday lives? If God has shored up for us a home in heaven with him, then will he not also take care of my week? If, if God has mapped out the next million years of me with him and eternal love and eternal joy, Lewis says the atmosphere of heaven is the atmosphere of love. If God has not done that for you and for me, well then he, will he not take care of my everyday life right here where I am? So when we find ourselves with a why question, we need to be reminded first of our personal relationship with him. Second, we need to be reminded that God knows infinitely more than you and I know. God knows infinitely more than you and I know. How many of your parents in the room? Let me see your parent. Okay. How many times you've been in conversation with your kid and you've said to your son or your daughter, do this or don't do this. Don't play in the street. Don't mess with the electrical outlet. Don't run with scissors. You've said this to them. And then they went, why? How many of you have been asked that by your kid? Okay. Why? Why? And you know, in that moment, you, you feel, because you're four, okay, and I'm 40. So I know a lot more than you know. How many of you know more than your four-year-old? Let's see. Okay. Not very many of you raised your hand, which has me a little nervous, just be honest with you. It either means you're not very intelligent or you're asleep. I'm not for sure which one of those it is. 
You know how much, you know how much more intelligent you are than your four-year-old? Now times that by infinity, and that's God compared to us. I don't know as much as God knows. But if I knew everything that God knew, if I knew everything that God knew, I would answer this prayer request in the exact same way that God is answering it. Why? Remind yourself of your personal relationship with God. Remind yourself that God is infinitely more wise than you and I could ever hope to be. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're wider and deeper. Last. Remind yourself that God always does what is best for you and for me. Now, I want to be very clear about something. When I say God always does what's best, what I'm not saying is God always gives you what you want. Because what we think is, well, what I want is best. But it's not always. It's not always, is it? And sometimes we want things that are not the best. Like an extra donut at Connection Group on Sunday morning. Not always the best thing. Should have went with the fruit, but you went two donuts. That wasn't a good choice. Sometimes we don't always want what's best. But God always does what is best. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God works all things together for good to them that love him, to them that are called according to his purpose. Why? Why is everything that God is working in your life and in my life, why is it all good? Why does Paul say that? It's, he's working it for our good. Why is he always working it for our good? Why? Because everything he's doing in our life is making us like Jesus. So everything he's doing in our life is making us like Jesus, which is the ultimate good. Jesus here on the cross, when he dies, he dies in darkness. That's the judgment of God. He dies under the curse of God. He dies charged, convicted, and condemned of my sin, of your sin, if you've put your faith and trust in him. But Jesus, when he dies on the cross, dies in full confidence of trusting in God. I don't know what suffering, I don't know what hurt you've experienced in this life. But do not allow that hurt to drive you from God. Instead, allow that hurt to drive you toward him. By reminding yourself of your personal relationship with him. By reminding yourself that God knows more than you and I could ever hope to know that you and I will take with us into eternity why questions. And God always does what's best. You may not understand, I may not understand that it's best for us right now, but one day when we see Christ face to face, the Bible says our faith will be made sight. We'll understand 
then. I believe you and I will get to eternity with all of our why questions in our pocket, ready to ask God all the stuff we really, really demand to know from him. And as soon as we see him, we'll go, okay. Uh, I understand. I'm just going to bow and to worship you for how great you are.